Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney and welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop with just Anne McElhenney today. Phelan is still recovering from COVID. He's fine, by the way. He's grand. But I think it probably wouldn't be the healthiest for us to sit in very close proximity. I don't know if you can get COVID immediately after getting COVID. But anyway, we're going to try and cut down on those possibilities. So it's just me today. Um, and it's June. So, gosh, how did that all happen? Uh, six months into the year. But lots and lots of stuff in this podcast. And by the way, um, quite a number of people were in touch about last week's podcast and about the pieces that I um, quoted from, the pieces of accidental um, abortion reporting from um, from pro-abortion uh, um, people who accidentally reported on the truth about abortion. So I got a lot of very um, supportive messages and I appreciate them very, very much. Um, thank you so much for, for all of those. But on today's show... Um, we have statistics that confirm what we already knew about why all our friends are leaving um, Los Angeles. We'll bring you that. And it's not just LA people that are leaving, California also. Perhaps it's because educators and the people running the education system appear to be illiterate. Um, and later we're going to be joined by the great Alec Epstein, who is the author, you will all remember, of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, um, I think four, five, six years later, uh, ago. Uh, he has a new book out called uh, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal and Natural Gas, Not Less. And that's a really great interview I did earlier, so I really want you to stick around for that. It's really great. Um, and really stick around for the very end of the podcast because as we wait for the uh, the results from Roe v. Wade, what we think is going to be the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court, Hollywood are determined to do absolutely everything they possibly can to lie and lie and lie again about the issue. Um, and it's amazing how they the, the contortions they'll go into in order to do that. And we're going to bring um, an amazing story to you about that from a recent... Uh, television show. And I have a little recipe. Now, I am sort of running solo here, so we don't have any video, but I have a little recipe for roasted carrot soup that's really easy to make and would just make you so happy. So I, I will add that, even though I know the weather's improving. Soup doesn't really seem like the thing to think about. But with us having the COVID around here and not being uh, brilliantly well, actually, it it was it worked out really well. Um, Oh, and by the way, in good news from last week, State Farm have decided not to donate books on transgenderism to schools um, in a quite a big about face. And I think this was a really um, all praise, by the way, to the consumer advocacy group who had, you know, done the whistleblowing on this story because, you know, they got such flack and they had so many people ending their policy. I'd love to know how many people... Um, you know, closed off their policies with State Farm because of that story. But it's it's a kind of a good, uh, it's a good news story, um, you know, where the consumer has basically said, you know, you can do whatever you like, actually, as a company, but don't you're not going to necessarily get my business if you're going to pu pu push transgenderism to kindergartners. Um, and I had a I had a review. I remember last week I was sort of saying to people, please write, please write and review. Please tell us what you think. And people do write. And I spotted one that I hadn't noticed from April. Um, and this is from a woman called Mum of Three for Jesus. And I'd like her to know that I'd love to be her next door neighbor. But she says, I love your show. Love you both. It's sometimes hard to listen to you because you talk over each other. In particular, Phelan talks over Anne. Every time she talks, it's very frustrating to listen to. Let her talk without inter interrupting her, please. It's hard to make out what you're trying to say. Otherwise, keep up the good work and I'm going to send you money. 
Well, well done you and thank you so much. And uh, you see, I won't have anyone interrupting me now today, but I am looking forward to having Phelan back um, on the podcast uh, and I'll try and control his interruptions. He's shouting in the background saying that it's all lies, but we're not going to. He's not. He's either going to be here sitting beside me, but he doesn't get to shout from the sidelines. Anyway, our first story uh, this week is about this, you know, massive loss of population in cities in America. And the Wall Street Journal have written about this and the New York Times have written about this. It's funny. The, like the Wall Street Journal are quite honest about, the, you know, the numbers and incredible, but they kind of miss out on the story story, which is, so, you know, huge, huge population decline. San Francisco and Chicago population totals are near 2010 levels. Big This is from the Wall Street Journal. Big city population declines deepened across the US last year as the pandemic continued sending Americans in search of more space, according to census figures released Thursday. Mm, yeah, I'm going to question uh, the reason why people moved. The largest cities lost a greater share of residents than small and mid-sized cities. Um, and the two that they, you know, the two that had the biggest declines basically looked like New York, the nation's largest city, lost 3.5% of its residents. About 305,000 people left New York. Um, the second largest city in the United States, Los Angeles, lost 1% or 41,000, while the third largest city, Chicago, lost 1.6%. Another interesting thing that they had in that, in that story was that, uh, but there are two cities that, where the population grew, and those cities were Phoenix and San Antonio. And I'm kind of surprised that the Wall Street Journal doesn't kind of point out the kind of very obvious situation there. You know, there's something else going on here as well. So people are leaving these extremely liberal cities, extremely lefty uh, enclaves to go to less lefty places, to go from, as we said before, from, from blue to red. And in the case of Phoenix and San Antonio, they're obviously winning and gaining population because people are moving out of these more uh, lefty places. And I think they kind of miss out on that story. But it was interesting, the New York Times send out a newsletter called California Today. And at the same time, because obviously these statistics about population decline have just come out in the last few days. Um, and here's what they say. And it's funny their take, how the New York Times take, you know, how they interpret this. You know, they say, for the first time ever, California's population declined in 2020. And then again in 2021. Such news tends to spawn discussion about how no one wants to live in California anymore as it's too expensive drought-stricken and fire-prone. Now, hang on a little minute. Just hang on a wee minute there now. And let me do some of this... Co I'll do. Let me do this for you now for the New York Times. Let me do this complicated journalism thing now that you're finding so tricky. Why are these people... Why wouldn't you maybe talk to a few of these people? Why don't you talk to, like, basically everyone we know who's left Los Angeles who have lived here for decades... For decades, it has been drought-stricken here, and there have been wildfires forever here, and it's been expensive forever here. The people who are leaving, though, haven't left for any of those reasons. They've left because of the politics. They've left because of the school system, like our own Magda, um, and so many, many people that we know, uh, many, many of them uh, of that age group, of Magda's kind of age group who have children, have left because of the school system. But even... But even older people, and Phelan is shouting again from the other room. What are you saying there? And crime. Oh, yeah, crime is the other reason that they've left as well. But, you know, the idea anyway that it's, you know, that, th that these things that were always true of California are the reason that suddenly people have decided to move. No, people have decided to move because the BLM situation was so shocking for so many people when the city became unlivable for months on end. 
and it and has remained fairly lawless since then. And crime stories. I mean, on our next door, the Venice one. I mean, it's just fright. It's actually I've given up on on reading it because it's so. It's kind of first of all, it's really scary, but also there's so much anti-Trump rhetoric, unnecessary, unnecessary anti-Trump rhetoric that it's just like terrible. But another reason, by the way, that people might be leaving California is uh, this other story, great story from the Wall Street Journal. Um, I just thought this was so funny. The headline was chiefly illiterate in San Francisco schools, right? The school district of San Francisco, which by the way, should have known better considering, you know, what's been happening up there with their school boards, members being sacked. So here's what they're doing. This is according to the San Francisco Chronicle, reported by the Wall Street Journal, that the school district is planning to phase out the word chief in its job titles, as in, you know, chief operating officer or, you know, chief executive officer or chief financial officer. The word chief, they're going to get rid of that. Very important. And the reason they're going to get rid of that is given that the Native American members of our community have expressed concerns. So, you know, so CEO, you know, they're going to have just EO or whatever. But they're, So they're now in negotiations and in deep conversations and, you know, and really, really looking into what to replace the word chief with. What's really extraordinary is I wish some of these people, and according to the Wall Street Journal, which, put, which is really, really funny, the full article is very, very funny, is here's what they say. Here's what's particularly amusing in this attempt at progressive sensitivity. While... The English language has lots of words that can be traced to the native peoples of Americas, including chipmunk, barbecue, and hurricane. They don't include the word chief. So the word chief is not a a Native American word. That word comes from the old French and originally Latin. And the Oxford English Dictionary has citations back to 1297 of the use of the word chief. Farewell, great chief, says a character in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. That's dated to the early 1600s. Somehow we doubt, again, this is the Wall Street Journal, somehow we doubt that Shakespeare was thinking about the Sioux Nation. A biblical translation from William, William Tyndall of 1526 speaks about the power of Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, and on and on and on. So don't San Francisco schools have English teachers who can explain this? And even if chief did have native origins, so what? The English language is a melting pot, to use another disfavoured term. Or maybe real progressives should forswear French-derived words entirely. This is just another, you know, it's another example of the school districts in California having their priorities completely upside down. I mean, what they really need to be focused on is education, on literacy, on numeracy, um, and on trying to undo the absolutely appalling damage that was done because of COVID restrictions and children not being in school. So right now, by the way, we're going to go over to an interview I did earlier with Alec Epstein, who is the author of Fossil Future, a really brilliant interview that I did earlier. So let's go over to that right now. So we're now joined by Alex Epstein, who is the author, famously, very famously, the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. His new book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal and Natural Gas, Not Less, is just out. Um, Welcome to the show, Alec. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Good to see you again, Anne. It's been a very long time. Yes, indeed, it has. Um, So I want to start by asking you, how is the book being received? Well, it's being received really well. So it's been a top 100 seller on Amazon the first week, and this is of all books. So that's unusual for a book on energy policy. Yes. 
And, you know, I, one of my strategies, with, I mean, I have, I have basically two strategies for a successful book. One is writing the best book I can imagine. And then two is sending it to people in advance of launch so they can read it. So if yeah. you go to say, I have a Substack page, alexepstein.substack.com, you'll see one of the early articles is about the endorsements. And it's this really long list of endorsements. Uh, but it's because I really took the time to send it out to people or that was yeah. a real priority. Now it's a risk if people don't like it, uh, but I expected a lot of people like it. So it's gotten really some amazing uh, reviews, I think even on another level than the moral case, which is justified, I think, because I think it's yeah. much better than the moral case was. Interesting. Uh, and, and it's getting, you know, there've been various attempts to oppose it. I don't know if you heard the Washington Post tried to go after me uh, a few months Tell us back. about that. What did the Washington Post do? Because oh, we just we just adore them. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> I mean that very sarcastically. Uh, yeah. So they got a, so you think about it like, okay, we sent a copy of the publicist sends a copy to the Washington Post because this is a big book from a major publisher, Penguin Random House, from a major best-selling energy author. But the idea is they're actually supposed to read it and review it or report on it, right? But they decided that's not, that's not what we want to do. So instead, what they did is they collaborated with a group called Documented, and they tried to dig up anything I had ever written that they would think was embarrassing. And so they found some individualist writings of mine on culture in college, and because, and they're very individualist and anti-racist, but because these guys are collectivist, they think that me saying Western civilization is superior, they think that's about race, even though I explicitly said it's not. Skin color has nothing to do with culture. Culture is about ideas. And I think ideas are universally valuable regardless of, of skin color. So they were planning this hit piece where they were literally calling me racist and getting academics to call me racist. Oh and gosh. I outed them because I had the outline with the quotes. And so yeah. I outed them, I preempted it. And then they didn't even publish anything for a week after they said, and then they, they pushed, they put a very diluted version that had no, ver no mention of racism. Uh, but if I hadn't done that, it could have been a real debacle yeah. to have the Washington Post spreading to millions of people. Oh, this guy's a racist. So you shouldn't listen to his arguments about fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, was, I went on Twitter just before we came on and I don't know if you, you realize you've got a new friend called, uh, a, a friend in inverted commas, uh, called Gerald, Gerard Cotney um, from Crime, Climate Brawl. Oh my God. He is so upset about your book, by the way, Alex. It's very, up, he's very upset. Have, have, you, you, have you interacted with this guy before? I haven't interacted with, I don't know the guy at all, but I'm just looking at this stuff from him. He's very upset, but he's saying, you know, conservative podcasters are lauding all over about, and of course he keeps calling you a BA in philosophy. Like that's a bad thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, his push for more fossil fuels. Tell me. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I have, you know, I have a policy on Twitter where I don't block anyone except if they harass me. They right. try to attack a family member of mine yes. uh, or they tell they knowingly tell out and out lies uh, about me. And I've already tried to correct them. And, and I think in my history, I've maybe blocked three or four people. Right. Uh, and it's a real challenge to know, because the, the idea is I want to allow all comments and I don't want to suppress things. And I have no fear of any criticism. Uh, but this guy is a piece of work. I mean, all he ever does is he just responds to every post saying, you don't know science. You don't know yeah. science. Yeah, you don't yeah. know science. It's like, read my arguments, actually engage in the argument. So, so the other part of the response is people are either trying to get me canceled or they're trying to do the equivalent on their own little scale, which is yeah. to say nothing to see here. So yes. they're like, oh, don't read this. Like there's yeah. one bizarre thing that some people are spreading around. It's a five minute alleged review of my book. 
that has literally a 15 second distorted clip of me from a Bitcoin podcast where they're making it seem like I was confused. The host of this podcast, by the way, has condemned this clip as ridiculous. Uh, but the person hasn't even read the book and everyone even, this isn't just like random losers. Like uh, there's a major professor who keeps saying, hey, re- look at this detailed review. I don't even think he watched the video because it's a five minute video by somebody who has not read the book. Yeah. And this is his answer. So they don't, th- what they can't bear is somebody who's logical and scientific and believes that we impact climate, but doesn't believe in climate catastrophism and believes that fossil fuels are good. That's what they are terrified of because they have no answer to that. They just love saying, oh, you're a climate change denier and and you don't have to think about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. That's so easy, by the way. It's such a great, you know, line if they can. And I see that you have addressed that in the book that, yeah, you're not going to be, you know, you're not allowing them to, to say that about you. Let's go back and start to at the very beginning of what, so the, the actual title of the book. So let let you know. Let me play. My my husband always hates me when you when when I use that phrase of you know being devil's advocate. But basically, you're saying what no expert in the world is saying. And I know you have a whole um expert. You know, you have a whole explanation of the whole idea of experts. But mm-hmm. you're basically saying for human flourishing, we need. And by the way, I am I I just love the book. By the way, and I love uh, everything that you've said because I couldn't agree with you more. And I have plenty of my own stories to go into that one. But that we need more of fossil fuels, not less, for, for, for humanity to flourish. Um, why is it that, you, that there, you're this one voice and all the experts in the world agree, and we're constantly told how they all agree that, with the opposite? It's, it's a very legitimate question because I am saying something that's 180 degree opposite to what we're told all yes. the experts think. And I want to emphasize what we're told because that's not necessarily the same. And it's, it happens to be very different mm-hmm. in terms of what actual expert researchers think. And, and because it's such a jarring thing, I spend a lot of the beginning of the book untangling this idea of what does it mean when we're told the experts say X? And the, the point I make, I'll make it quickly. It's, uh, there's, it's the product of what I call a knowledge system. So it's not yeah. simply that we just receive somehow magically what all the researchers think and it goes in our head. There's a set of institutions that mediates from the basic people doing the research in the field, which by the way, they are fallible. They can be subject to influences, but even if they're not, even if they happen to be right and not biased, which that's hard enough in and of itself, there are the people who synthesize their findings so that we can distill them into a manageable amount of information. So in climate, there's what's called the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Then after that, there are people who who further distill and then disseminate. I call these disseminators, like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And even if the synthesizers are right, the disseminators can get it totally wrong. We've seen this happen with the IPCC reports, where what's actually in the reports is not at all what you would think by listening to the disseminators. And then there's the issue of evaluation. Uh, What do we actually do about this knowledge about how the world works? So for example, if we learned about, hey, fossil fuels are causing more drought, Does that mean we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuels? No, that evaluation doesn't follow because maybe we have huge benefits of fossil fuels that offset that, including, by the way, something people ignore, which is our ability to master climate. So maybe we have an ability to irrigate and to provide drought relief, where even if drought in some abstract sense got 10% worse, it would be way better. And what I point out is there's every reason to think there are distortions happening throughout the system because there's a fact that everyone wants to evade, but nobody can challenge, which is that the rate of climate-related disaster death, which is supposedly the thing that's getting worse, that's gone down 98% 
this is this is an yeah, years. yeah this is an amazing point you make and you have and you have a graph and all of that in the book to go with it and i think it's really a point worth stopping for a moment and i obviously i our friend that i mentioned at the top of the show he's obviously or, or someone else on twitter would say oh where did you get this where did you get this information from and i know that you have all of your all of your sources are cited um but it's a very very interesting point 98% over the past 100 years you have a number of very powerful graphs in the book but that's one that I think is because every child in every school in every high school and elementary school in the world, in the developed world, at least, are being told the very opposite of what you're of, of that piece of information. And I think it's an incredibly obviously it's a very positive piece of information. It's a wonderful piece of information. We should all be celebrating that we're not dying because of climate related uh, issues to the extent that we were. Why is no one telling anyone that information, though, Alex? No one's telling anyone. Except for it's you. Just, well, yeah, there, there are a few of us. So there are, I'm glad to see more and more people popularizing this. And I first learned about this in 2007 from, I mean, a colleague of mine named, a physicist named Keith Lockett at the Ayn Rand Institute, but then he learned it from a guy named Inder Goklani. And it comes from the, what's called the International Disaster Database, which is a nonpartisan database for people who think I just made this up or got mm-hmm. it from Breitbart or something, <laughs> like, or something like this. Nothing wrong um, with Breitbart. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying, but if they had, if they had just made, if it just yes. had been, you know, an editorial, yes. that's different from actual sure. research in, yep. in the field. Uh, so it's what, what's notable though, you mentioned that people don't talk about this. And I just want to emphasize, this is not simply that the New York times doesn't talk about it, that what I call disseminators don't talk about it, that evaluators like, you know, our public officials don't talk about it. Even the synthesizers, namely the UN intergovernmental panel on climate change, they have more thousands of pages of reports. They can include anything they want. And they don't mention this once, that we are far safer than ever from climate. I mean, that's like having a polio report that yes. doesn't mention that we have a polio vaccine yeah. and that we're far safer from polio than ever. And so what this points to is there is some very, very deep bias throughout our knowledge system that is causing a lot of distortions. And, and you know, we can talk about what that is, but I think just it's very, just even that fact, yeah. the fact that we are really in a climate renaissance and it's portrayed as a climate emergency yes. shows that there is something that's malfunctioning and that should open people up to, hey, maybe Epstein is right. Maybe there is a, maybe the, the conventional evaluation we're taught is 180 degrees wrong. Yeah, but, the, you know, go, just stopping on that actual idea that there's some kind of something, there's something wrong, there's some kind of, um, there's some disconnect happening here. And I love in the book as well, another point that you make that, that of course, is incredibly important. So that the, these people out there who are so obsessed with carbon and carbon is, God, we're all going to die and carbon needs to be reduced. Mm-hmm. However, the two best solutions to reducing carbon, which obviously are nuclear and hydro, they hate them. So that kind of almost further emphasizes that point of yours. It's like, that's a massive disconnect. Surely if the carbon is the problem, then there should be a massive embrace of nuclear and hydro. And even if you want to, you know, put even put even nuclear aside for a moment, because if you believed Silkwood, if you watch Silkwood and China Syndrome, and you think we're all going to die because of nuclear, why they still are opposed to hydro, which has to be like the cleanest, you know, from every point of view. But they don't like that either. I like thinking of myself often as a philosophical uh, detective. And so... I like when, whenever you see something that doesn't add up yes. in terms of people say, I care about this, but then clearly they don't. So they yes. claim I care about a livable climate, yeah. yet they're 
indifferent to the fact that we're far safer from climate than ever. And this is the knowledge of people, not just the, the general public that doesn't have any expertise. And then they say, oh, well, I care so much about this issue, but I oppose nuclear mm -hmm. and I oppose hydro. And then if you look in practice, what's also revealing is the green movement is hostile to solar and wind in many ways. Why? Because solar and wind are very dilute. The, the main problem is they're unreliable, but they're also dilute sources of energy. So they require massive amounts of space mm -hmm. and massive amounts of mined materials, as well as transmission lines. Yes. Well, who are the biggest opponents of mining? I mean, you guys know a lot about mining, right? Yes. The, the green movement, who opposes the transmission lines the most? Uh, the green movement. And so what you see with the opposition to fossil fuels is it's just one instance of a broader opposition yes. to all forms of energy. And, yes. and the basis of the opposition is always one thing, which is they have a lot of impact on nature. And so the idea is that there, there's a hostility that these things have too much impact. So it's like fossil fuels have CO2, but wait a second, it's not about CO2 because you're against nuclear and you don't like that impact either. And you don't like hydro's impact. It interferes with free flowing rivers and you don't like mining. And so then what, what is then implied is what your goal in all of this is, is not what I would say advancing human flourishing on earth by protecting us from say CO2. The idea is that our goal should be, our human impact is evil and our goal should be to eliminate human impact on earth. And I think that is, that's the driving thing behind the movement. And that explains what that's one big explanation of why they omit that we're safer from climate than ever, because the mm -hmm. way they evaluate climate is not how conducive is it to human flourishing, because in that case, we're in a climate renaissance. They judge it by how much have we impacted it, and they regard that as evil. Mm -hmm. So they think of the climate as worse than ever, even though you're 150th as likely to die from a climate-related cause, because they think, well, humans have contaminated it. So it's really this, I think of it as a primitive anti-human religion, where the, the commandment is thou shalt not impact nature. And then there's this mythology that, oh, if you do impact nature, the god of nature is going to punish you. And that's global warming and climate change. Yeah. And actually, I, I want to stop for a minute and, and talk about early in the book, you have a very good, very disturbing story from the Gambia, um, which I think is something when we were making Not Evil, Just Wrong um, about this, about the, the, the global warming issue. Uh, we went to Africa and it's you have to go to somewhere like that to really understand what reliable elect electricity is all about. I don't want to I want to let you tell that story of. So it's a story that, that appeared in the Gambian news. It was from a, a, blog, a blogger, I think, who had witnessed something quite extraordinary at a hospital. Um, and uh, do you want to tell that story and, and what it sure. means? Yeah, and I, I, this is one of the, so I've, you know, this is a new book on fossil fuels that totally replaces the first one and is way better and way more current. But this is one thing I kept. It's pretty much the only thing I kept because for me, this story was particularly jarring in terms of just making me think about the world and how important reliable electricity uh, is. And, and just to give a quick contrast story that's not in the book, like I had a friend, um, you know, a few years ago who had a premature baby. And it was amazing what lengths could be gone to, yes. to help that baby survive. I think at one point the baby was helicoptered or, or maybe even it was the, you know, the instruments or some medical treatments were helicoptered. And of course there's incubators and all sorts of other machines. And then you go, and so this is just, you know, the baby is totally healthy now and we don't think twice about it. And, you know, you know it's, but then you have just the same exact situation in the Gambia country in Africa and the hospitals don't have incubators. Well, why don't they have incubators? I think this was even a less ca serious case than my friends. Well, because they don't have reliable electricity and you need reliable electricity to run incubators. 
And so what happens is you just have these tragedies of, I mean, this particular story is just this, this observer is watching. Yeah. The mother has a baby, the baby is premature. They do what they can, but they don't have real modern machines because they don't have reliable electricity and the baby dies. And that's just, that's just a tragedy. That's, that's forever. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just a tragedy. The mother has to live with. She'll never forget it. And, and yeah. we have these different parallel tracks where my friend is like, great. It's, it's totally forgotten day to day that there was this problem, whereas this other person had a lesser problem and that's gonna be with them for the rest of their lives because they didn't have reliable electricity. And so when we're talking about, hey, let's get rid of fossil fuels, let's cut off loans to the poor world, like you have to really keep in mind, there are all these people right now who don't have incubators and really, really want them. Yeah, and it's, um, I think until you experience um, no electricity, you don't, you know, it's really hard, it's very hard. You know, I, I kind of make one of the points that I, that I often make about, about energy is that most people, and by the way, I'd include myself in this, and I'm actually fairly knowledgeable. I don't know what's heating the water in my house here. I don't, I don't know really what the makeup of the, you know, mm -hmm. of what is, you know, how much coal is going into that. And it's, it's a shame, actually, that we didn't, that we don't all know. Are you in LA? Turning, pardon? Are you guys in LA? I I'm in, yeah, I'm in Venice. Yeah. So oh, yeah, tell me, LA, LA is very interesting because okay. in California in general, we've way over indexed on solar. So we have the situation where we always often have way too much electricity in the middle of the day and not enough later in the day, which contributes to our blackout. So we need reliable neighbors who can absorb our excess and then even more importantly, give up, give us electricity. We don't have enough, but uh, LA power and water has historically had a really good deal with coal, I believe from Utah. <laughs> and I think that's helped out. Yeah, uh, a lot. It's not talked about, but you see, I, I've posted before images from the, you know, these different energy administrations, and you'll see like 50% coal in LA during a hot day. I love and the Hollywood people do not know this. Yeah, no, 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 nobody. Yeah, of course not. I, I, I used to make the joke when I'd see all the Priuses, I was, I looked at the Priuses and I'm thinking, there's a, that is a coal powered car there. At least part of it is coal powered for sure. You know, um, t talking about kind of getting onto the grid a little bit, um, uh, I'm I'm fairly obsessed with what happened in Texas, and I know you touch on that in the book, um, which I think is a story that that got very very little play, and um, the blackout in in Texas, which mm -hmm. got very little play in the mainstream media, and I think intentionally so. Um, I certainly say to people, and I want to know, do you agree that that's coming to a town that's coming to a town near you, if these policies continue. Um, and I don't know if you know what's happening in Ireland. It's very interesting in Ireland. Maybe, I, I, I don't know if you've mentioned that in the book. I didn't get to finish the whole book. But in Ireland, you're not allowed. They're not allowing people now to cut the bog in Ireland, which is a very traditional way of people heating their homes. New build homes in Ireland are not allowed to have fireplaces. So that if there was an electricity black or a blackout, you'd actually have no way of creating heat in your house. You would have no independent way of doing that. So these kind of things and what happened in Texas, for me, this Texas thing is just, I, I, I'm really disturbed by that Texas story because this is Texas. It happened in Texas. If Texas politicians allowed this to happen, God help the rest of us, right? And I, do, I, I think agree. something like, am I right in saying like 70, I think 80 people died, including a child who, fro who froze to death. Um, can you talk to the Texas situation and what we should be learning from that? Yeah, just to quickly mention the Ireland type situation, because it's related, is we have this dynamic of we're told to be increasingly dependent on just electricity. So in California, you have all these 
new laws saying, you know, you can't build natural gas heating, you can't build natural gas infrastructure, even though that's by far the most cost effective thing. So it's very harmful to the poorest people, but it also just makes you more dependent on one point of failure, namely the electricity grid. And yet at the same time, we have the electricity grid is becoming worse in terms of electricity is becoming higher cost and in many cases, lower reliability. And, and this is starting to become inescapable because we had in California in 2020, we had statewide blackouts that I definitely experienced. And then I think 2021, I'll talk about the details, but Texas was a wake up call because as you said, it's Texas. But now you look in 2022, I just posted yesterday on Twitter about a, a post called electricity emergency because you have a national regulator saying, we've got risks of blackouts around the country this summer right around the country. And the thing, the point to make about this, about the nation and about Texas, and this is very, very important, is it is easy to provide reliable, resilient electricity given the state of human progress. So it's not hard. And when people say it's climate change, I mean, come on. Uh, we provide reliable electricity in super cold places, super hot places. Mm -hmm. Singapore has reliable yes. electricity. Yes. Uh, every place imaginable has can have reliable electricity. So whenever you see a lack of reliable electricity in these failures, you know it's a policy issue. Mm -hmm. it, it, without going, because what happens is people try to distort the details to act like, oh, it was a failure of fossil fuels. But as I point out in Texas, that same time, if you look at the time that the Texas blackouts were occurring, Alberta had worse temperatures and they were fine. Yeah. And they had a resilient grid that was mostly coal and natural gas mm -hmm. and they were fine. Yeah. So you know that there's something policy-wise in Texas and the basic story, it's a longer story, but the basic story is that Texas has spent an inordinate amount of money uh, on yes. unreliable solar panels and wind turbines because it wants to jack up its percentage of electricity from those sources as much as possible. That some, some for subsidies, there are other reasons to involve, but that's been its goal. And that, that involves a lot of transmission lines and that necessarily defunds uh, things like resiliency. And so Texas is hugely dependent on natural gas electricity. And if you do that, you really need to make sure it's resilient because it, it has more points of failure than say coal or nuclear electricity, but they haven't invested sufficiently in resiliency and they have totally uh, over-invested in this unreliable infrastructure that causes problems. So the week before the storm, wind was providing half the electricity in Texas and the wind people are like, great, this is amazing. But then it gets really cold and wind and solar go down to almost zero. Not because the wind turbines froze, that's just a temporary thing. It's because when it's really cold, the wind usually doesn't blow yeah. much. So yeah. it was just this case. And then what happened is natural gas needed to quadruple in a very short amount of time. And the infrastructure wasn't sufficiently resilient and it was this huge burden. And there were some failures on the grid and a bunch of things. Yeah. And so there was a collapse, but <clears throat> even throughout it, natural gas provided almost all the power, a huge, huge percentage of the power. But the, the key is, this is a failure of anti-fossil fuel policies. We yes. know how to use fossil <clears throat> fuels and nuclear and hydro to provide reliable electricity everywhere under all conditions. It's only because we have this obsession with what I call unreliables that we're now having these problems. I'm very pessimistic about the future because of the education system that is mm -hmm everyday catastrophizing to young people. And in fact, you, I'm sure you know about this, that young people have the de depression among young people because the future is so bleak, according to the people who are teaching them, um, you know, is making them is making them depressed. How I mean, have you any solution to like what what do we do about a, a, an education system, not just here, but all around the world 
that's teaching children the exact opposite of what you're saying, that is teaching people children that the world that the the, the whole thing we're all polluting the whole world is incredi- incredibly polluted we're all on a trajectory to apocalypse what do we do with that because those children grow up with those ideas become the leaders in these institutions that make all these laws possible that make what happened in texas possible that happened in texas because people believed the the nonsense believed mm-hmm. the, the catastrophizing what do we do about that and I would just emphasize, I agree totally, and I'd emphasize that the child stuff is a tragedy in and of itself. I mean, yes. to just destroy somebody's, and of course, it's yes. the psychologically to be with them for life, but to just create this fear and the, all these anxiety statistics are terrifying of yes. people thinking about it daily and this kind yep. of thing. So I'd put the solution in a few categories. So, so fundamentally, what needs to happen educationally, which is not to say I know how to impl- I know how to change all the system, but what needs to happen, in my view, is the number one thing people need to. It's a two part thing. They need to understand is what was life like before mass empowerment by industrial civilization. Like what was life like when we had manual labor lives yeah. versus what I call machine labor lives. You need yeah. and so nature. People think of it as this delicate nurture, so it's stable, it's safe, it's yeah. sufficient. And no, it's actually wild potential. It's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And if you understand how bad life was before we empowered the world with fossil fuels powering all our amazing machines, you get you start to fear being unempowered. Yes. You don't fear, oh, there's going to be a side effect and we won't be able to deal with it. And then you, you learn about how amazing modern fossil fueled life is and how we've made the world unnaturally abundant and unnaturally safe uh, and also how fragile that is so people think of it as it's the world is a, nature is a delicate nurture well nature isn't a nurturer and it's not delicate it exists in this huge range of things we've had 15 times more co2 life still thrived on the planet um, but what is a delicate nurture in a sense uh, is our capitalist fossil fueled system right because when that when you destroy freedom and or the fuel that people need, then you have these crises like yeah. the blackouts in Texas. And imagine a week of blackouts. Imagine two, week of bla- two weeks of blackouts, how much chaos there would be, how much starvation there would be. So, so that's what's needed educationally. Now, how to do it is a different, uh, is a different thing. Get fossil future and you can actually get it for free, uh, which you might, people don't know about. So okay. you just go to- Tell us a, about there's that. A, there's a website, uh, it's yaf.org slash fossil future. Yaf.org slash fossil future. So that's Young America's Foundation. And yeah, we're going to be giving away at least thousands of books through them. So if you're a teacher or any kind of educator, including homeschool educator is fine, uh, you can can use this. And I think if they read this book, particularly chapter four of the book, I think is the most important for getting this and for breaking this just fear. Uh, chapter four, maybe chapter seven and nine as well on climate mastery. And then about the actual science uh, of our impact on climate. I think that'll, you'll, you'll have a different, like you, if you understand how to think about these things, you should be more relaxed after learning about them. You should be more optimistic about the future, except less optimistic about these so-called climate policies. Then, then you're afraid of those, but it's not the same fear of like Gaia is going to murder us. It's just, if we deprive people of energy, it's going to be really bad. So we shouldn't, shouldn't do that. So yeah, I, I'm very intent on doing what I can to change yeah. this psychological torture yeah. that's going on right now. Yeah. 
No, it, it's ex- it's extraordinary, as you say. And funny enough, it's it's something that um, the women's movement, you know, liber- you know, feminists should be very, should be should be on, you know, should be all uh, cheering you on because you look what look at how women's lives have been transformed from you know spending days upon days, you know, doing laundry, and you see that in play, you know, in places in India and Africa, you see people, you know, washing clothes at a river and stuff like that. You know, when you think of the, the what the washing machine means, I I that's one of my jokes when I when I speak about this, I say to people, you know, that the washing machine you know did more for women for women's liberation you know than the pill you know and uh, i've had quite quite the reaction to that i can tell you on certain campuses well the women's studies how many women's studies programs do you think cover fossil fueled liberation and by the way what a what a really brilliant topic by the way like what a brilliant topic to talk about because yeah, you saw it completely transformed people's lives, completely transformed women's lives. I don't know. I wanted to bring one story to you before I get to the last two questions. I don't know if you saw what happened today. Um, it's just been reported today um, in the New York Post. HSBC, did you see what they did? They, they, they suspended did. their executive. I love this guy. So Stuart Kirk. Now, I actually wonder, I said to Phelan earlier, I wondered if Stuart maybe have a couple of gin and tonics at lunch and loosen up a bit, right? And he's at this conference. He, he, was, he was very loose if you saw, I don't know if you saw the speech. But I didn't very see loose. it. Was he very because he sounds oh like God. he sounds like what I sound like when I've had a couple of gin and tonics. And I just love what he said. So here's this guy, HSBC guy. And uh, I will actually you're saying that there's video of it. So we should probably try and show that video. But basically, he says, you know, I wouldn't know. You know, he says, um, what is it? He says, you know, he says 25 years in the finance industry. There's always some nut job telling me about the end of the world. Anyway, he got suspended for that. He got suspended for telling the truth, basically. And I imagine, you know, we were talking about it earlier and I was just saying, you know, you can imagine that these conferences, you know, it's all very stiff and very whatever. Suddenly you get this guy who actually says the truth. Um, but look at how look at how it's been, you know, how, it, how they've reacted to that. Yeah, so it, it was, I, I, most of what he said made sense. It was interesting because he said things that were way exaggerated in terms of cata- like likely catastrophe type things, which he said were no big deal. But he said something like six meters of sea level rise is no big deal. And like, there's no projection of that, but even right. by the extreme people. So yes. there were a couple of, but what he said generally certainly made sense yes. in terms of we are extremely adaptable. And look, people in the Netherlands live well, people do live six meters below sea level. Some do. Yeah. And, and yes. we have a hundred million people who live below sea level at high tide. Yes. So human beings are not just going to be, if we're free, are not going to be ravaged by climate in the way that is predicted. And that was his basic message. And that's certainly worth a hearing. The idea yeah. that you can't even, that that saying that is so scary. I was, it was so crazy to me about it. It was great, but he was just so uninhibited. And he just seemed totally confident that this would be received just fine. And people yeah. are, people have started uh, saying to me, oh, why were you so worried about the Washington Post? Why are you worried about these professors on Twitter and climate journalists on Twitter who say, who try to pressure your publisher into pulling the book? Yeah. Well, this is why I'm worried, right? Because there's this idea that if you can brand somebody a climate denier, yeah. everyone wants to scurry away yeah. uh, from them. So this was, yeah, this was a, I mean, HSBC has so much bad propaganda. So I wasn't at all surprised. But it should be they should be shamed for it, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's getting some play. I mean, you know, as long as as long as Twitter remains some kind of a 
um, a playground for ideas. Um, uh, we hopefully, hopefully, Elon Musk is going to get in there and make sure that we can all say what we what we want to yeah, say. Yeah, although although they, he's not, he doesn't love open discussion himself too much because he he blocked me from Twitter years ago oh. for for pointing out that the Tesla is a really good fossil fuel car uh, in Forbes. Oh, but, yeah. So, uh, oh yeah. No, oh, I, yeah. I do think he'll overall be better, uh, but yeah. I, I don't think he's like a lover of open conversation. Himself. Oh, that's disappointing. He, okay, I'm disappointed to hear that. When he was pressured, I mean, I, I'm totally okay with blocking people. Again, I don't do it much myself, yes. but I think it should a good policy. If you're interested in ideas, should be harassment. Yes. Not like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Not, not like to, not, not somebody, like telling the the truth shouldn't be um shouldn't be the yeah. Not be saying like hey, I don't think it's right for you to take these subsidies. Hey, it's not yeah. accurate to portray this as a solar car. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Listen, I could talk to you forever, Alex. This is, I mean, it's an amazing, the whole, the whole issue is amazing. The book is a really great contribution. We'll put up all of the ways that people can, can buy the book. And also obviously, as you said, um, young people can get it and schools can get it and educators can get it. So I want to ask these last two questions that we ask all our guests. So we ask our guests if they have a piece of art that they would share with us and tell us why it's important to them. And then we also ask them if they cook, what would they cook or what are they famous for? And if they don't cook, they can share a cocktail recipe so off you go there alex okay so i actually have a piece of art but you warned me about this so this yes, is I something did. i found i live in laguna beach i found it at the laguna beach art show so i don't know if you can see this oh yeah so it's it's just by a local artist but it's oh, yeah. uh kobe, oh, kobe bryant kobe bryant oh, right here yeah so um Fabulous. yeah and it's pr printed after he died so I really, really liked it. I mean, I loved him as an athlete in general, but in, in particular, he has a lot of uh, significance for me because he, he was one year older than I was. And he, you know, he was one of the people who first went to the NBA from high school. And there was a lot of controversy uh, around that. And I really solidified in my mind this idea that credentials are not the most important thing. The most important thing is ability. And so when I was deciding I wanted to be a practical a philosopher who kind of illuminated different kinds of issues. I didn't know at the time when I was in college that I wanted, I would do energy. I only got into that later, but I was thinking like, do I go to grad school? And everyone's saying, oh, you got to go to grad school. You need to be Dr. Epstein. And I just thought, well, no, I want to do what Kobe Bryant did was I'm going to actually become really, really good. And then the world will know. And I'm not going to waste any time. If I don't think the credential is the most efficient way to get the knowledge and abilities that I need, I'm not going to do it. And so I ended up studying on my own and writing on my own and testing. Yeah. And I think I learned so much more that I know than if I had been certainly in a philosophy uh, PhD program. Oh, and yes. so I just kind of kept, I never told anyone this at the time because it would just seem crazy to compare myself to Kobe Bryant. It probably does now too. But I was just, I really, I really loved that he just, his thing was getting good at the thing that you want to do yeah. and not worry about anything else. So oh, that's just, this is why this is my, yeah. this is in my room next to my, these posters. This is always something I look at. Oh, it's really great. It's really great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Do you cook then, or do you make great cocktails? Well, this is, this is a thing. So I consider myself very good at cooking and I never cook. I oh. learned how to cook as a kid out of necessity because my parents wouldn't get me as much junk food as I wanted. So I need, but we had the ingredients. So I learned how to manufacture it uh, <laughs> myself. I would say the thing I'm probably best at that I used to cook for myself, but now I'm pretty good at getting people to do stuff for me. Uh, but to the point that some people call it lazy, but I, uh, I, I think I'm really good at cooking chicken in a way that grilled chicken in a way that tastes good because it's really easy to overcook 
chicken. Okay, so let's hear no, very, let's hear the details on that now because that's a good one now because overcooking chicken is a thing. So what's your trick? Give us some tricks there. I, well, I just think the trick is you need to, I mean, I, I'm, I haven't done this in years, but I, I would use like high heat on the outside. I mean, the thing is, this is the thing anyone can do. So there's a level even beyond me that you have perfect timing. But what I would do is just learn how to check very constantly on how cooked it is and then learn how much it kind of cooks itself at the end. So, cause you don't want to be left with it at all raw. I don't want to yes. get anyone here sick or anything yeah. like that, Yes. but you can't just sort of leave it there and then hope that it turned out. Okay. It's more like checking, you know, cutting little openings and just seeing, and then if there are different thicknesses, you have to adjust for that. But you have this, you have this final ideal of here's the perfect amount of cooked and moist, but then you need to, you need to check on that. You need to really, really check uh, on that. And, and again, you need to know the, the chicken cooks itself a little bit at the end. So you need to learn how to factor that in. So and can I, I, I got very, you, very good at that. Okay. I want to give you a little bit of advice, which I think oh, for, good. for free now, Okay, get yourself an air fryer. It'll change your life. Oh yeah, that's true. No, I did learn the, yeah, this, so oh, this was God. after my main cooking. Yeah, that's true. The air fryer is a great way to do I this. love it. Um, I love it. I've just discovered it. And you know, I would, I, I, you know, I went to Costco, they were on a kind of a sale, very cheap. And I, I just can't get enough of the, I just can't get enough of it now. And I think your chicken, People, once they would learn exactly the right time, you can just keep doing it over and over and over again. It'll always be the same. So the air fryer right. is very reliable that way. And you can really predict the, the temperature and obviously keep, as you said, cooking at a very high temperature to seal the outside and to give it that nice crisp. So, yeah, well, thank there you for you. that. Alex, thank you well, very thank you. much for this. This was really great. I can't recommend the book enough. It's really, really wonderful. Um, you're singing a tune that we've obviously, you know, been singing similar tune versions of it here um, for a long time. And it's 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 an extraordinary thing when you when you do learn how important electricity is to people and what it's like for people who don't have it. I mean, one story we had when we shot the God was a mind your own business. We shot some of it in Madagascar and Madagascar, a bit like the Gambia, like the story you told earlier. They had this thing where the electricity went out every day at whatever time it was. I can't remember, but the electricity went out. So, of course, there's no freeze. There's no refrigeration becomes um, useless. And everyone on the everyone on the crew, you know, the cameraman and the sound person and ourselves, everyone got like really, really ill, like just really, really ill from food, you know, from food difficulties. Because mm. food does not do well if it can't be preserved and kept. And you know, just a simple thing like refrigeration that that moved us from being, you know, having like food poisoning on a regular basis to not having food poisoning on a regular basis. Um, is kind of massive, you know, and it gets obviously it gets much worse than that when you start taking out incubators out of it and all the rest of it. Yeah, so it's great to, you know, these. this is what everyone needs to be educated about, among other things. They really need to get rid of this nature worship and this yeah. hatred of human impact yeah. and really embrace the idea that nature is wild potential and that human impact, if it's productive and net beneficial, is an amazing virtue. And we should really celebrate the people who are impacting the world for the better. You know, we talk about, oh, I want to make a difference in the world, but we think it's bad to impact nature. Yeah. How does that make any sense? Yeah. Make well, that's actually, isn't that the argument? Um, isn't that the argument that they use a lot with um, hydro, that they don't like hydro because you're interfering, you know, with the river, right. you know, you're interfering with the water. And it's like, you know, I, I used to, one of my jokes was, um, you know, because it's unnatural, you know, I just love things that are unnatural. I'm all about the unnatural, right? Living to 101 is pretty unnatural. And, you know, we have a great story here. I remember coming to, when I first came to California and sitting at a dinner one night uh, somewhere in Beverly Hills, you know, and I sit beside this man who was not young. And then he casually starts talking about his father, right? 
And I said to him, I just have to ask you, I said, sorry, you're, t- you're talking a lot about your father. What, what age is your father? And he said, let me tell you about my father. So my father's 104, he said. And, you know, when he was 100, I phoned the local newspaper and asked if I could get an article, you know, if they'd like to come and take a photograph. And the, and the local newspaper in Beverly Hills said, go away. We cannot be writing articles about people who turn 100 because the newspaper would have nothing else in it. Come back when he's 105. And I said, well, how is he doing at 104? And he had just given, I, I, what was it? He was, there was something, I can't remember what it was. He had maybe stopped playing tennis that year, right? But I mean, you know, this is not natural. I want the unnatural life. I want food not to go off. Um, and I want all of the drugs to stop, if I get <laughs> cancer, to stop me dying of cancer, you know? It, I mean, in a sense, you can think of it as, I mean, I think of it as we're the best part of nature. You can think of it as, in a sense, supernatural, not in the conventional version of that, but it's like we've, we've imp- what I call improved the planet. We've made it and we've made ourselves superhuman because instead of just our weak physical bodies, we have all these machines to do much more physical work than we can do and to do kinds of work we can't do. Like an incubator, no, we can't get five of us together and make an incubator. We can't get any number of people and fly. So we've become superhuman. And yet we're, we're told to be fearful and to condemn the people who have empowered us. And, and that's, uh, yeah, I think, I think the more these messages spread, the more fossil yeah. future gets known and it's getting known. Well, people are going to think about themselves and the planet very differently. Yeah. And it's such a positive message. Your story is that, you know, this is such a, and I think, I mean, I, you know, I really wish we, you know, I, I want your book to go everywhere. I want you to go everywhere and speak to students on campuses and cheer them up. I mean, I used to do that. I used to go, you know, cheer up. This, we've never had it so good. It's never been this good ever at any other time in history. And they don't know that they don't know that. And it's, it's, it's important that they do because, um, it's terrible that they're not getting to enjoy, you know, that they're, yeah, just, that's, that that's they're so the disturbed. Cycle. So it's going to, it's the two things, right? It makes the world worse to not understand it, but also makes you unhappy. Another, another weird thing is everyone talks about gratitude, right? Gratitude yes. is key to happiness. And there's a lot of truth to that. And yet we're told to be totally ungrateful to, to all of the amazing fuels and machines that make life amazing. Yeah. And that leads to so much misery because you yeah. just think of it as, oh, there are these evil forces that are polluting and they're making, the, they're changing the climate and that's so evil versus no, there are these allies of ours. You know, these machines are just these beneficent things that are helping us. And, and if you have that gratitude, you'll be happier. You'll yeah. be much happier in the world. You'll have this whole thing uh, to appreciate and you'll stop making the world worse than it needs to be. So the world is better than ever, but we see what's happening now, say with an energy crisis, if we have enough ideas that our impact is bad for the world, we'll stop impacting the world and it'll get worse. We'll have yeah. more expensive electricity, less reliable electricity, fuel shortages, all you know, over-dependence on Russia, all yeah. the things we're having now. So it's, yeah, there, but I think we have a moment now because there's a crisis and yes. in a crisis, people are open to new ideas. Yes. And so this is why I'm happy it took me so long to do Fossil Future. It took me three years. A moral case took six months, but I, I'm glad I'd spent all this time in part yes. because now it's releasing when people are more open than ever to the idea of a yeah. fossil future. Well, I really hope um, you have huge success with the book. I know you've already been very successful with it, but I hope it gets um, massive readership and, uh, and I hope you get out there to talk and to preach this good news to so many people. Thank you so much, Alex, for your time today. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Anne. Take care. I, I could have talked to Alex 
for the whole day. What a brilliant book. Um, highly, highly recommended. So go and get it on Amazon or wherever you get books and please do buy it. It's very, very important that this book gets very, very wide circulation. But also remember what Alex said in his interview there, that if you're a teacher or a student, an educator, you can get a free copy from YAF and we'll put that um, that site where you can go to to get copies of the book. And I would really highly recommend it. It's a very, very, very well-researched um, book. And, you know, as we sort of said at the end of the interview, the thing that's really important about it is how optimistic it is. You know, what a wonderful... Um, that the truth, you know, is optimistic, that the future is bright, that um, everything isn't falling to pieces, that there isn't an, uh, an apocalypse coming, that in fact fossil fuels have made everything really wonderful. Um, and we just need to go back to educating the world uh, about that and it's a very important work that Alex is doing um, and we're and that we do ourselves here as well so please do support Alex do buy the book um, and and share it with as many people as you possibly can um, coming to the end of the show now and I wanted to just um, as we you know we're all very focused on what's going to happen in the Supreme Court we're very focused on the road decision um, again thank you to so many people who wrote about those pieces that I talked about last week where pro-abortion, uh, you know, people basically accidentally told the truth about abortion and how shocking it is when you read the truth about abortion. That's why uh, the left don't really want to do that. Um, but worse than that, the left are actually um, involved in, a, in, in very, very, very involved in a misinformation, a misinformation campaign in relation to, in relation to abortion. So... Salem and I watch a lot of t bad television. It's kind of our way of relaxing. And we love procedurals. We love those TV procedurals that are, you know, that go on from year, you know, season to season. And particularly the medical ones. And there's one that we watch called The Resident. And, you know, it very, it's, you know, it's got all the stuff that you would expect in, an Ameri in one of those procedurals with the romance stories going on and then really extreme, you know, uh, medical procedures and et cetera, et cetera. So they just had the season finale of... Uh, the resident, and you know, and there was a whole, there's a whole love story, and the guy getting over his wife having died. There's all this stuff going on, and in the middle of the show, they they shoehorned in a storyline, and we're both like watching the TV, saying, "I don't, I just can't believe where I think this thing is going." So let me, let me tell you what what happened. So you have, yeah, you had a, you, first of all, you had a character walk, walk onto the set with his wife and his wife was not doing well and she's 20 weeks pregnant and she's not doing well and she's having difficulty breathing and she's, he's worried about her heart and she's really, you know, unwell. And the first thing that they do to introduce the character of the husband is he blesses himself. And the minute I saw that, I thought, I, I, it, it's like, a, nowadays when you see somebody in a contemporary Hollywood produced show or TV, you know, or movie and you see somebody bless themselves, it's almost like, it's, you know, in, you know as, the, as the left like to say, it's like a trigger warning. It's like, uh-uh, let's see what's going to happen here. The very highly experienced doctors all come in, look at the woman, examine the woman, say that she's, go she's about to go into heart failure, and that the only thing they can do, that, that the only thing they can really do is to end the pregnancy to save the wife, to save the, the life of the, of the mother and the man's wife. You know, and, and they tell the husband, and he's like, no, no, we have to save both of them. We, you know, we, we, we need to save both of them. You've got to do whatever you can. You've got to save both of them. And it's all very highly charged. And the doctors are saying it can't be done. And and I have the whole transcript, by the way, from I found the whole transcript from the because it's actually online. And, you know, they said, you know, here's what they said in the, in the you know, in the in the in the transcript in the actual show. They said we can't deliver the baby at five months. It's not viable. That's 
fair enough. We understand your pain is enormous, but we believe your wife will not survive if we don't do this, Mr. Alvarez. Your son will lose his mother. Honestly, it's not a choice. We can only save one life, hers. You know, and the husband says, no, no, we have to save them both. And, you know, we think that the alternative is far too dangerous. And they go through this thing and we still recommend, I'm just going through the, the script here. They say, Mr. Alvarez, we still recommend that you end the pregnancy today, if at all possible. You know, and then eventually they sort of say, well, we could put your wife on a machine called an ECMO, E-C-M-O. It would ease the stress of her struggling heart and it might perhaps buy us some time to keep her alive for a few months until she can deliver the baby safely, etc, etc. But it's far from perfect. You have to understand the ECMO is very, very dangerous. There can be complications like hemorrhage, stroke, infection, brain damage as possible. She could wind up paralysed, unable to speak, blind. Like, really dramatic. So on and on and on. And I think maybe, you know, people who watch this podcast will probably know exactly where this ends up going. And I'm not going to read the whole script. The mother dies. The woman, they do put the woman on ECMO because the husband says that's what the w- wife would want because the wife wants the baby. They do put the baby on, they do put the wife on ECMO and he di- she dies. You know, we can't, her heart is too, you know, basically your wife is dying. This is the last part of it. We can't, her heart is too badly damaged. We tried to tell you this was a long shot. It didn't work. I'm so sorry, etc., etc. So, and she dies and it's all very shocking. And this is the season finale, which would have a very, very big audience, by the way. And don't forget the timing of this. This has literally just been on television, like in the last few days, right? And we are literally weeks away from a decision of the Supreme Court where pro-abortion activists are trying to put pressure and they're outside of the houses of Supreme Court justices screaming and shouting um, for them to not end the Roe v. Wade. So, you know, this is not accidental. This is not accidental at all that this is here right now, that we're suddenly getting to see this. So again, I did a bit of a digging around on the internet and I found that the exec- one of the executive producers of the show was interviewed and asked specifically about this issue. And here's what they said, and this is from um, a, a website called TV Line. And they said to this guy, um, and I'm going to find his name for you now in a moment, um, the executive producer of the show. They basically said to him, you also tackled a storyline that ended up being quite timely with regard to abortion and pregnancies that threaten the life of a mother. Was that happenstance or perhaps more pointed given recent events? So, you know, TV line are being very honest. And the, the executive producer, basically, he says, oh, it's entirely happenstance. This is the quote from him, in quote, entirely happenstance. We planned that out months ago. Well, I don't believe him, by the way. I'm just going to say that right now. Anyway, we were very careful not to make it a political issue. You know, they're so nice, these people. It's taken from a real life. So here's what he says. It's taken from a real life story of a man in Texas where it happened exactly that way to his wife. She was pregnant and he tried to save them both through an ECMO machine. We were careful not to raise the issue of abortion and to really just make this it this medical thing that they can try, but you don't know if it's going to succeed. We don't want to be political. It was an incredibly tragic story. He goes on and on and on. So, you know, they'd heard about this story, right? They'd heard about this story. Now, um, how did they hear about this story? Obviously, then they must have heard about it online. So we went looking for this story online. By the way, I've also reached out to the resident, to the TV show, The Resident, on Twitter. I've written to them twice um, and asked them to tell us about, to to give us the name uh, of the case that they were quoting. Because we can't find it online. What we did find online were two different stories. Two different stories about women pregnant who had this very situation happen to them. Two stories. One of which, in fact, was covered 
uh, on Good Morning America. Two stories. And in the two stories that you can easily find online, the woman and baby both survived. So that's really odd, right? Isn't that really odd? And we can't find the story where the mother and child died. And the stories that actually happened, the true stories that actually happened, would have made better TV, would have made much better TV. One of them, and they're worth listening to, they're worth hearing, one of them was a Marine Corps spouse and mother of five. Um, And this is, you know, a Marine Corps spouse, like how cool is that, you know? And mother of five was 28 weeks pregnant when she caught a mild case of COVID in June 2021. Um, Her name was Ashley Savdij Hernandez, felt tired, wasn't too concerned until she suddenly started having difficulty breathing. Long story short, rapid decline, she goes to the hospital, they put her on an ECMO machine. And again, very, very interesting that the husband, and they're both quoted in this story, are both very religious. Um, And the husband at one stage says, when he left her in the ER, he left the wife in the ER, he said, I'll be right back, he said. Those were the last words I said to her and they haunted me for weeks because at several points I thought God might be calling her home, right? Which I think is really dramatic. How would how great would that have been in the resident to use those words? And I remember asking anyway, so whatever. So the Ashley was getting ill, she was getting deteriorating. So they decided, so then they decided when she was really not doing well, they decided to put her on the ECMO machine. Um, she was on the brink of cardiac arrest without intervention. And this is the doctor speaking, the doctor that was there, Mason. We needed to stabilize her, etc., to get a better delivery and the best outcome for both patient and baby. It was really the last ditch effort to try and save her life. So super, super dramatic, by the way, super dramatic story, which would be great on on camera, right? Because the husband and him being religious and all of that, the two of them being religious, you know, and and this story, which which is from one of the newspapers in in Texas, you know, goes on to explain what an ECMO is. It's an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. More commonly known as ECMO is a heart-lung bypass system used when other life saving interventions such as oxygen therapy or ventilator have been exhausted. It removes blood from the central vessels, oxygenates it and delivers it back into the bloodstream. In essence, it replaces the natural functions of the heart and lungs. On and on and on. In Ashley's case, we were running out of options and we were concerned for her baby, he said. ECMO was the best course of action for her. So they go ahead, they use the ECMO and... um, you know, the husband says, basically, I knew what the acknowledgement could mean for her, the baby, and us as a family. It was in God's hands. And again, very religious people, which echoes what happened in the resident show where they talked about, you know, them being religious. And they're both fine. They both lived. The husband, you know, who's a U.S. Army captain, said she felt very overwhelmed for, you know, and then the baby was delivered and the baby was fine and they're both home. And the last quote at the end of that story was, it was, not, it was an experience unlike we have ever faced together or apart, but truly a miracle, her husband said. Only by God's grace and both the skill and care of the, of the medical staff that my family is whole today. And I actually think, what a beautiful story, right? What a really beautiful story. And yet, right? So that story was not the story that the resident are quoting. And then the second story, you know, we, you know, there's not even one, but there's two stories out there on the internet. The other story comes from the Star Telegram, a totally another, a totally other woman, um, a Texas woman who survived. So the, again, what we looked for, what Phelan and I looked for was ECMO stories of pregnant women, who, of women who were pregnant who had to be put on ECMO. And, you know, and this is kind of amazing because we found two stories. We did not find a story of a woman who died and her baby died. We did find stories of women 
who were put on ECMO and the, mo- and the mother and baby both survived. And in this one, I, this is the one, the second one is the one that was featured um, on Good Morning America. And I just think it's really nice. So I just wanted to quote a little bit. A Texas woman who survived COVID-19, multiple seizures, a stroke and other complications while pregnant, named her newborn after the doctor who helped save her life. Isn't that just great? Diana Crouch, a 28-year-old from Kingswood, was celebrating her anniversary with her husband in Las Vegas in July when she developed a very bad headache. And the story, and the reason, by the way, why Good Morning America really focused on this story was because she wasn't vaccinated, the mother wasn't vaccinated, and they were using it as a kind of a salutary tale. You know, go out there, even if you're pregnant, and get, get vaccinated. But they go on to say here, she was 25 weeks pregnant. So they, anyway, they had, anyway, she ended up again, this woman ended up in hospital, was not doing well, had to be put on an ECMO. She was 25 weeks pregnant and still on ECMO when she suffered. And by the way, I thought this was very interesting because in the resident show, they talked about the dangers of stroke and all this kind of thing that could happen. This woman, uh, Mrs. Miss Crouch, she suffered three strokes in one day, as well as seizures and a heart attack, according to the Houston Chronicle. After her stroke, she was kind of laying there and she didn't move or anything for like three days. And I told Dr. Cameron, if she starts to wake up, I know we're going to walk out of this hospital. And she woke up the next day, the husband says. Uh, Chris Crouch told the court, morning America. Um, And Crouch was introduced to her baby three days later, taken off the ventilator 10 days later and finally released from the hospital on December the 23rd. We really felt like this was miraculous. And here's again, here's again what the husband said. And I just think it's, anyway, I'll just tell you what the husband said to Good Morning America. We prayed a lot and we felt like God was kind of helping us because there's no textbook on these things. We had to make some really tough choices that could have easily gone poorly. And yet they didn't. The baby was named Cameron after the doctor, whose name was Desfullian, Dr. Desfullian, Cameron Desfullian. My first response, so Dr. Desfullian says, my first response was, Dr. Desfullian says, I don't deserve this, he told the Texas Tribune. This was such a team effort. No one physician, nurse or anything can take more than 0.1% credit for this. But he but he told the KTRK, that's the news organization, the local news organization, it's such an honor. And that he was in tears when the couple told him that the baby was named after him. And I just think, you know, when they're making these TV shows, right? So they're making these TV shows, you know, they want it to be really dramatic and all of that. They had a true story that was really dramatic, that had a beautiful ending where the mum and baby survived. They had those and they chose not to use that story. And in fact, they chose, apparently, look, it looks very likely that they lied about it, actually, and that they, you know, just changed the story. And instead of having this good outcome, had the mother and child die. And I think we all know what message that was sending. So... Very disturbing. Um, And this is the power of Hollywood. This is the power they have. Millions and millions and millions of people, unfortunately, will have watched that final episode, that season finale of The Resident. And I just think there's something really despicable. And if you want to go on Twitter and find my tweet, maybe you'd retweet my tweet. And let's keep on asking The Resident um, people, the writers at The Resident, why, where is this story that they are quoting, that they say happened? Where is it? Because we're finding two stories that happened in Texas and happened recently where the exact opposite happened in the result. So we're coming to the end of the, the show. And I just wanted, I, and you know, I don't have my 
hearty assistant to help me. And I know I haven't done a recipe for a while. And Magda's always saying people really do like the recipes. So I kind of have a half recipe kind of recipe idea. And obviously we had the COVID. And so, you know, we were looking for kind of comfort food and all of that. And I had a bunch of carrots. I bought a big bag of carrots and I couldn't use them. So I had thrown them into the freezer and they were just there. And I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do with that many carrots? And then I was sort of, you know, thinking about it. And I decided to make a roast carrot soup. I also happened to have, which was also a really good idea. I had very nice chicken stock that I'd frozen and kept in the freezer. And I was thinking, you know, I need to clear out the freezer. If you buy the Costco rotisserie chicken, or if you buy a rotisserie chicken, by the way, anywhere, and you, you know, you use it for salads and whatever, or for a curry or something, whatever you do, please, please, please never, ever throw out the carcass. Never do that. Throw that into a pot. Throw every piece of flavoring in your fridge in there. Throw anything in there. Put in your ginger in there, garlic. Um, turmeric, any of that, just put in the roots themselves. I, you know, very, you know, an onion, a bay leaf. Um, I'd always put in a jalapeno, but that's just me, right? Bring it to the boil, then simmer it with a very, very, just a shimmer, shimmer, shimmer um, for about two hours. And then, you know, let that cool. And you can just throw that into the freezer. And you could, some people, by the way, put it into those, into an ice, you know, those ice molds. So you can use little pieces of it and add it to things to give it flavor. But in this case, what I did was I took the carrots out of the freezer, and you can see there, I just put them on a baking tray and I put them under the broiler and I just broiled them because that just brings a nice bit of caramelization to them, a little bit extra um, flavor to them. And I had the stock already made and like there's n- there is literally nothing simpler. I did also, you'll see there, I then um, I sweated a- an onion and some garlic. I just sweated some onion and garlic chopped up the onions, threw them in there, put in the um, the stock, again, nice and quiet, really quiet, don't, you know, bring it to a boil and then let it simmer and simmer. And then I just um, put in the immersion blender and I cannot tell you how great that soup was. Really, really, really great. Um, you could obviously put, um, and I did actually, what I did, and I did, and I do this all the time with soup, I threw in a bunch of cheese at the end, but I had a visitor um, who is... Um, you know, whatever it is, he, you know, lactose intolerant. So I had another version of the soup for him. So just brilliant, actually just brilliant. So um, I would highly recommend the carrot soup. Really, really nice. And I know it's not really the, it's not really the time of year to be talking about soup. But anyway, soup is just so great. Um, And the last thing I'm going to say is I am really loving the air fryer. So if you see an air fryer on sale, I'd highly recommend it. And in fact, I'm already ready to, I'm going to possibly gift the first air fryer I got, which I got at very good value in Costco, and I'm going to upgrade to a bigger air fryer because it's a, it's it's I'm just loving it. I, I it's really efficient, it's healthy, it's fast, um, and it's just a really really great tool to have in the kitchen. So I'm just loving it. Anyway, we've come to the end of this uh, podcast. Um, a thank you for tuning in. Um, we will very soon have. Uh, big news about the movie and we're really excited to bring that to you the film is literally in these last days is the edit is being finished so if you want to help and support us with all of the work that we're doing and we have another project coming out in a couple of very very soon that you're going to really love um please go to the unreported story society.com and give what you can we do appreciate all the donations um and we actually have we have we have a matching donation right now at this moment. We have a matching donor willing to 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 match donations. Um, so if you if you if you donate, your your donation will be doubled. So please please do donate um, and donate as soon as you can. Um, we we need we need your help. Um, 
and we're so grateful for it. And please don't forget to rate, uh, give us a rating and um, and send us comments about anything that we talked about. Um, and l- I'm really hoping next week we'll have film. So until then, bye. Thank you. Bye.